Good morning. Proverbs is where we're going to be, in particular, chapter 3. If you want to turn your way there in your physical Bible, or if you've got a little phone one, then I guess you can tap your way over onto Proverbs chapter 3. This morning, we are one month into our fall teaching series that we've been referring to as Wisdom's Way, kind of subtitling that, Finding the Good Life in Proverbs. Wisdom's Way, Finding the Good Life in Proverbs. And over the past four weeks, the book of Proverbs has revealed kind of the essence of the title, that finding the good life is found in wisdom's way. The good life, a life of abundance and fruitfulness, of flourishing, that is found in wisdom. This past week, as I've been considering that and you know, as we're moving through the series, I even asked on uh, like an Instagram poll, I brought it up with multiple of my baristas, I'm sure they love that, and just conversations with my friends what to you is the good life? And I received all sorts of different answers about what the good life is of simplicity or happiness or community or joy or peace. And what was so interesting is in all of those answers, not one of them set wisdom as being where the good life was found. Now, I'm not here to poo-poo anybody for not having wisdom there, but it was quite interesting that many of us When we think about what the good life is, we wrap it up in some form of a relationship or just a state of being a loving and loved person, of happiness, of truthfulness, of knowing that we are living with certainty for what is true, or even that, that peacefulness, that inner peace, that kind of living with a contentment in the midst of whatever we're going through. So all of those are good, but why, why are those not the essence of the good life? Why are they not, and wisdom is? Ray Ortland, in his uh, book on Proverbs, summarizes this really, really powerfully. He says it, and you'll see it behind me. If we have love but not wisdom, we will harm people with the best of intentions. If we have courage but not wisdom, we will blunder boldly. If we have truth but not wisdom, we will make the gospel ugly to other people. If we have technology but not wisdom, we will use the best communications ever invented to broadcast our stupidity. Without wisdom, we are in danger of taking all of those best things of life and misusing them. It is quite possible to be a loving imbecile, to be a brilliant dunce, to be a successful idiot, a courageous dolt, a peaceful airhead, and a happy fool. What we need is the ability to receive and engage with all of the the feelings and the emotions and the things of our life before us in a way that that uses them with wisdom. The Hebrew word of what we'll be reading, Proverbs, written in Hebrew is chokmah. It relates to a skill or expertise that wisdom goes beyond just you knowing the right things but living the right way as you come into contact with happiness and peace and joy and contentment. You see, without wisdom... You can love in a way that actually leads to destruction and actually more pain to those around you. Any of you have an incredibly codependent coworker or family member, you know precisely what I mean. They're the most loving people in the world, and yet they don't have the wisdom to hold it rightly, and so they bring more damage than they do love. Similarly, you can have a completely thought-through perspective about truth and what truthfulness is, and yet if you do not handle that rightly, you will not win people over. You will push them away from what may be the truth by the very way that you speak it. One of the people that answered inner peace being the meaning of life is, yes, but finding that in what? And how do you know that you're actually finding peace 
and, you're, and, 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 and not just escaping the world. You're not setting things to the side so that you could find it. So you see, wisdom is that expertise, that ability to take all of those things of life and to, like a master craftsman, wield them well in building a good life. It is wisdom that is how we find the good life. And so as we've been progressing, just if you want to have your Bibles open, you can look back to chapter 2 where we were last week in verse 20 right towards the end there where it describes the good life to us. So you will walk in the way of the good. You, your life will be in the way of the good. And this, this is it. And wisdom's way, all of chapter 2 last week was telling us, is found for those who draw near to God. Wisdom, finding that ability to rightly wield all the complexities of life, to build a life of abundance and influence and fruitfulness, is found for those who draw near to God. And so today, as we move into chapter 3, it's going to continue that same line of thought, maybe from a new dimension, and it's going to practically detail on what it means for us to draw near to God. What does that actually look like? Drawing near to God is really fancy, pretty language, but what does it mean beyond praying and going to church, and, right? What does that mean? That's precisely what today's all about. And so if you have Proverbs 3 open before you, why don't you join me in standing, if you're able? We're going to read uh, these 12 verses together, and, uh, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll be seated, and we'll begin to unpack what we're seeing here. And, and as always, uh, standing here, this is just like raising our hands in worship or kneeling in prayer. This is a way of us with our bodies identifying that there's something different than what we're reading right here, and even different than what Ryan's going to say over the next few minutes. So Proverbs chapter 3, why don't you read this with me? It says, My son, do not forget my teaching." But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind these around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father in whom he delights. And so, Father, we, God, we desire to be a people who live our lives with wisdom, rightly wielding, not in danger of what uh, William Irvine referred to as misliving. God, that we would get to the end of our lives and find that our love was actually not loving. God, that our boldness was actually destructive, that for all the technology and the information we had, that we were isolated. Our feelings of peace were built on a lie. God, we don't want to mislive. We want to build and live a good life. And so here, before your word, God, we ask that you would now speak to us as we reflect. God, that you would speak through me. God, you would help aid us to become a community that is more shaped by this, that we might display your wisdom not just to one another, but God, to our world. And we pray, amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. 
So again, as as last week, if you were with us, told us, in chapter 2, Proverbs told us that if we draw near to God, then God will draw near to us. Or as it puts it, you will walk in the way of the good there in 2 verse 20, as we just read. And and right in the middle of chapter 3, what we just read today, we found in verse 6 that same kind of good life description that he will make your path straight. That he will make the way, so straight language there is that of not being crooked, of it being straight. It's upright. It's a good way. Do you notice that 220, as it ended, it talked about having straight paths and walking on the good way. And there in the middle of our text today, it talks about the same thing. It's the good life set before us. But what last week was called drawing near to God, verse 5 for us, one of the most popular verses in all of the Bible, puts it quite simply as trusting the Lord with all of your heart. The good life of wisdom is based on and in trust. Now, at a baseline, that is exactly and everything that we're going to be hitting on from different angles today. And this passage, because it's one of the most popular in all of Scripture, specifically verses 5 and 6 here, has led me to write and rewrite and rewrite this sermon about four times over the past week, trying to encapsulate and carry all that it is here, and it was just impossible. And so come, you know, Saturday, we kind of just pulled everything together, and it's three points today. If you're taking notes, three things that we're going to look at in Proverbs chapter 3. Three questions. What is trust? How do we trust? And why do we trust? Hitting this, these three questions throughout this passage are going to help us to see what it means to find this as being the basis of the good life. Now, with all of my changes, uh, there's only going to be a few slides today. Normally, we have like the, each passages I'm referring to is right behind me. That's not going to be here. Um, so what I'm going to ask you to do is keep those Bibles open and follow through. I'm going to be calling out, pointing to verses. And, and I want you to see for yourself as we're reading through, not Ryan's ideas here, but, but we're, we're reflecting on what Scripture says. So let's return to that first question, right? The big one. What is trust? Right here in the middle of chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, are some of, as I said, the most popular verses in all of the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Now, in its popularity, there is a problem that happens so often with popular verses like this. Their popularity actually leads to a sense of obscurity. They're so popular to us that we kind of just read right over them. Dominic Hernandez, in his book on Proverbs, talked about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 as the LMNOP in the book of Proverbs. <laughs> that when you learn the alphabet as a kid, you know, you A, B, C, and then you get to what becomes one word, <laughs> LMNOP, and you keep going. That in it, we read over this so fastly that we don't realize that this is the center point of the entire book of Proverbs. In fact, as one person put it, that this is the Christian life in one word, trust. Now, with such a popular verse, it's worth asking, what does it actually truly mean beyond uh, um, uh, memory verses in Sunday school or merchandise opportunities for God? Coffee cups and bumper stickers of trust in the Lord with a floral background. What does it mean to actually truly trust the Lord with all of our heart? I was talking to um, Kyle Young uh, just yesterday where uh, he he had been talking to his wife, Courtney, about this passage. And and for her, growing up, trust the Lord with all your heart, it was kind of more or less a general optimism that you kind of carried. Like, oh, yeah, whenever you're going through life, you're just kind of trusting the Lord and things are going to work out. A general, things will work out well for the end. 
But, but a helpful image is found for us in trying to determine what does it actually mean to trust God beyond just the optimism that I can find uh, at my local grocery store in the form of whatever it is that I want to buy or Amazon. What is it beyond just my life is going to get a little bit better? This helpful image of what trust means come to us, that trust in the Hebrew and then this related word in the um, uh, Aramaic is, um, man, this is, I'm trying to compose this because it's so interesting. The uh, Aramaic related word to our Hebrew word for trust is what we're getting an English translation of. There we go. Is, the, is a verb. It's the act of throwing oneself down on one's face. So trust, when you start thinking about this, reading this as an ancient Hebrew, the, the image that would come to mind is someone throwing themselves down on their face before another. You know, you think of, you know, any royal, you know, knighthood movies that you watch. It's the knight falling on his face before the king. This act of not just honor, but vulnerability and surrender, giving themselves entirely in trust to the king, right? This is the image of what would be in mind when they hear, trust the Lord with all your heart. This is not pepper up, have a great day, get a good cup of coffee, God's on your side kind of a thing. This is an entire giving of oneself over to another, now, we don't have many people falling on their faces before kings anymore, and so the closest equivalent in my mind came in the form of a belly flop. My uh, little four-year-old Emma, the image here of what does this mean to trust? My little four-year-old Emma, sitting on the edge of the pool with dad waiting, arms ready to catch her, and her standing there uh, without her floaties, her little life you know, protection things, and her throwing herself. Emma does not jump in front of you. She jumps onto you when she jumps into the pool. Trust is, is to belly flop on God. With all of the weight of us, all of your dreams, all of your fears, all of your hopes, all of your hurts, all of your sin and mess and doubts to stake everything on entirely in God. This is parallel to what we find in verse 7 where it calls for us not just to trust in the Lord, but then it says it the same thing another way, to fear the Lord, to humbly orient our whole life, our thoughts, our desires, our actions, our speech, and our values entirely around him and who he is. This is what it means to trust. A whole self giving over to the almighty creator God the God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus, to throw ourselves entirely on him. You see, this gets developed a little bit more of, okay, so what does that mean, belly flop and all? We understand this truth by, by what it's not. In verse five, it tells us. But what, what it is not is to not lean on your own understanding. Verse seven continues, to not be wise in your own eyes. The opposite of the belly flop trust is to stand on the perceived safety of our own two dry legs to withhold ourselves from giving ourselves into an entire whole self jump of trust into God. But it, more than that, because it talks about not just uh, the leaning on your own understanding there is the idea being that you are kind of, kind of jumping into God, kind of leaning on your own understanding, supporting, relying, propping yourself up on it. For some of us, our, our kind of uh, uh, malformed, our pseudo-trust is not in the form of us not jumping at all, but us playing the game of Emma when she's, she's not fully there with her trust, dangling her feet awkwardly towards dad while gripping on to the edge. This game of, of partial trust 
speaking right now to most of us here that, that would identify as Christians, that you're gathering here today, I am not so much worried about the absence of trust in your lives. What I'm looking at for myself and my concern, my warning for each of us would be, not that we would absolutely lose trust, but that we would play this game of partial trust. Where at the end of the day, we trust God only so much as he fits within our perceptions, our understanding, our life, our desires, our dreams, and our goals. Because the danger is that partial trust is no trust at all. A.W. Tozer wrote that pseudo-faith, or we could just fill in here pseudo-trust, always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. It's a half trust. Yes, I would trust God with every, everything that I am, but also just in case. I've got my emergency button right here. Real trust, real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. You hear that? To be true trust, it is Emma going, it is either dad or the bottom of the pool. And not since Adam, the good news is, not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted in him. You see, true trust, what Proverbs has been developing as the basis of the good life of wisdom, is found only when we humble ourselves. We get to the place where my understanding, my perception, my, my, my eyes are severely limited, in fact. And so we move then into this posture of saying, what if the good life is found not in a tighter grip around my perceived wisdom of what I want and what's best for me and how I want to build my life, but rather allowing myself to be safely held in his. The trust that we're invited to is not a general optimism, but the terrifying notion of giving ourselves entirely over to God. What exactly does this belly flop trust look like? Verse six details it for us, where it writes, in all your ways, acknowledge him. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Do you see the all language there? There's not a withheld half and half game here. In all of your ways, you acknowledge him. Now, acknowledge is, is problematic in the English because acknowledge is, in, from my perception, I've had a cat, so cat people, don't hate me. Cats acknowledge your presence. They don't, when you walk in the room, cats are like, they do not care. They, they will acknowledge your existence. You are here, I'm here, and that's just okay. There's no relation. The opposite, and actually the deeper kind of what acknowledge is getting at, the word no in the Hebrew that this is rooted in, is not that, that kind of cat acknowledgement, but a, di a dog acknowledgement. Do you know, <laughs> Lorenzo got a dog this past week, and he's, I, we're a little worried it's becoming an idol in his life. Um, <laughs> There's the difference between cat acknowledgement and dog acknowledgement, right? This is so silly, but I'm hoping it's getting to the point of what verse 6 is saying. There is a way in which we can live our lives with a, a cat acknowledgement of God. You're over there. I'm over here. We're just going to, you won't bug me, and I won't try to bug you too much. Like, I might sit on your laptop from time to time. The, the difference of what verse 6 is actually getting at is far more of a, a dog acknowledgement of when I walk in the door, there is no you're over there and I'm over here. It is I'm right here and you're right here and aren't we great together? This is the best ever, like the tail wagging. The word acknowledge or know in the Hebrew is, is related to the language of knowing an intimate friend. It's actually, it's actually used multiple times as a euphemism for sex. Deep, 
whole self knowing and loving and belonging. In all your ways, we could translate verse six, in all your ways, trust him with all that you are. In all your ways, trust him with all that you are. And this is exactly what the rest of chapter three is detailing. If I want to trust God with all that I am because I believe that in him is the good life, is the way of wisdom, and so I want to to trust him with all that I am and all that I have in all of my ways, the rest of chapter three is gonna fill out a few examples of that for us, of how we trust, to move to the next point. Because for trust to be trust, it is not simply the internal feelings that we have within us. My trust for you, my daughter's trust for me is only so good as far as we can jump to it. And we do. For trust to be trust, it needs to be enacted. It needs to be embodied. It needs to be lived out. We cannot trust and sit on the pool's edge. It is belly flop or nothing. So how do we trust? Three examples that are given to us today. Look back at the beginning in verse one and we find the first example of how we can trust God with all of our ways and all that we are. It says that our hearts keep his commandments. One of the first ways that we show that we give ourselves entirely over to God is that we keep his commandments. This is language of the Bible. This being in Proverbs, this is language of God's wisdom. But notice the emphasis on heart here. Notice that it doesn't say, but let yourself keep his commandments. Make sure you keep the commandments. It says, let your heart. It is not simply an outward checking off the obedience box. There are many people who do just this, all without ever fully trusting God. Their religious do-goodism is simply a way in which they use God. But it's not trust. The emphasis here is on your heart, or as Psalm 1 talks about, this, this person who, at the depths of their very being, they love and cherish the scriptures. They love God's word. They are thrilled at the opportunity to have them. They can't keep their mind off them. They find the scripture as beautiful, as strong, as wise, as a gift. And so because of that, they're dwelling on God's word day and night, turning it over, speaking it to themselves, and speaking it out within the community. This is the sort of person who keeps the commandments, not just with their hands, but with their heart. If you trust God, then you take him at his word. And you do this not to please God's heart, but because God's wisdom pleases yours. This is when our whole self, our whole lives are being oriented around who he is. This is the belly flop moment, is when we begin to find ourselves so enraptured by his wisdom that we give ourselves entirely to it. The alternative to this sort of trust that we're invited into is is what it says in verse one, do not forget my teaching. Now we could translate this forget in in one of two ways. The first is what we could call kind of a a passive forgetting. That is the, what's the 10 commandments again? Forgetting. Or the getting on throughout my day and then realizing like, oh no, that that was like a big, that was a no. I was really, really selfish. Oh, that was gossip. That was not, that wasn't wise. That wasn't godly at all. There isn't a passive forgetting But more to the point, there is also an active forgetting that's at work within the word here. An active forgetting that is a suppression of God's commandments. I've been reading through uh, Jeremiah. My wife and I are doing like the Bible in a year thing. She's smoking me. Um, I I was like, oh, I made it to Jeremiah. And she started laughing at me. Like is how far ahead she is. So 
Um, it's brutal. Anyway, I'm making my way through Jeremiah, and this story, I can't get it out of my head. In the middle, uh, towards the end of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 36, Jeremiah is a prophet who writes this scroll, the word of God for, you know, bad King Jehoiakim, calling for his repentance, calling for him to, if you, if you turn, if you trust God, if you give yourself over to him and you lead like the king you're supposed to be, it's going to go great for you, but don't do this, and you need to stop this and repent of that, right? This is the scroll that he gets. And Jeremiah chapter 36 talks about when Jehoiakim gets the scroll, and it says he reads it with a knife. And as he makes his way through the scroll, whatever he doesn't like or approve with, he cuts it out and he throws it in the fire. Anything that doesn't live up to him, anything that isn't within the kingship that he wants, the kind of king he wants to be, his vision about Babylon, cuts it and throws it away. And Jeremiah 36 says, by the time he gets to the end of the scroll, there's no scroll left. This is the active forgetting, the suppressing of God's king. Instead of delighting and keeping it with all of our hearts, we're rejecting it. This is the same sort of pattern that shows up with Thomas Jefferson's Bible, where he literally went through his Bible with a razor and cut out all of the miracles, the resurrection, and all of the power of God at work within the Gospels beyond just Jesus' teachings. What doesn't fit within my own understanding. It's the exact same thing the slave owners did with the slave owner's Bible. Wanting to give some kind of version of a Bible to their slaves, they went through and cut out and edited anything that mentioned the justice of God and the forgiveness or the freedom of slaves. They cut out the book of Exodus, cut out anything within it. Their hearts weren't keeping the commandments. They didn't view the word of God as a friend to cherish, but as an enemy to beat into submission. They were being wise in their own eyes. What we just saw a moment ago is the opposite of trust. And so they literally cut and edited scripture to fit their desires, their own perceptions. Now, here's the thing. You may not be setting up your Bible time in the morning. You know, you're getting the coffee ready, you get your journal open, and all your highlighters and markers and stuff. And then you set your pair, like your pair of scissors down. Like, aren't, that may not be where you're at. <laughs> I hope maybe, maybe I'm, I, I'm not. I don't think you are either. We may not be at the literal place of having scissors with our Bible reading in the morning. But the question is, where do I explain away Where do I excuse, where do I ignore, where do I forget or suppress the commandments of God? When and where does that happen, where I excuse that away? And I'm not talking about doing the good, deep work of studying and interpretation. I will every single day. The whole point of that, though, is so we might have a better and righter application of what we find within Scripture, not explaining anything away. You may not have scissors, but where, where do you cut? As I've seen in my life over the years, it is those commandments that I'm prone to forget, whether passively or actively, are the very areas where I don't trust God. For Jehoiakim, leaning into the political moment of everything going on, he did not trust God, that God was going to be faithful and there for Israel, so he was leaning on his own understanding. Thomas Jefferson's perception of the world and those weird things called miracles, it did not fit. So he did not trust that there was a God that was that powerful. And for the slave owners, they could not conceive of a world that was not built on the backs of injustice, at least to some. They did not trust God. And so the invitation here is is, is for those of you that were here last week, what we talked about in drawing near to God is once again, here it is. It's Christianity 101 is that this, 
this library that has been brought to us from Israel's story and then the story of the early church in the New Testament, the writings, the story of Jesus, this is the guiding framework through which we prove or show that I trust God. All day long, people will say that they trust God. They get up and do it at every single award show. The basis by which we then we judge for ourselves and we judge others on, on whether or not there is trust going on is this thing, this book, this library, these commandments. And so the audit, the inspection for us to give ourselves, if we identify as a Christian, is do I trust God's wisdom with all of my ways and with all that I am, in particular to those parts of the Bible that scratch up against me? Might it be that there's something that God's wanting to do there that I don't trust him? And so I'd rather be wise in my own eyes. The second example of how we can trust God in all of our ways with all that we are is found in verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The second example of how we show or how we can trust God with all that we are is we receive the Lord's discipline. Now at first glance, that sounds really, really scary. Here's the thing. This is really, really good news. God does not assume or expect that you are going to do this perfectly. He wouldn't talk about discipline if this wasn't part of the model. What we would have here is a warning. You better stay on track or you're going to lose out on it. You're going to miss out. You've got to do this perfectly if you want it all to work out in your favor. And what we don't find in verse 11 is the really good news that God's saying, hey, you're not going to do this perfectly. And when you do, I, like a loving and good father, I will help you find the way back. And so recovering perfectionists, for all of us that are here, there's a sigh of deep relief. I love that chapter three, it begins in verse one with my son and it calls us to keep the commandments. And in verse 11, it ends with my son, you won't do this perfectly. And in a sense, that's okay because the climactic measure of your trust and mine, the way that you measure at the end of the day, whether or not you trust God, is not found, is found not when, not if you fail. When you do foolishness, when you go stupid, when you fall and you find yourself in selfishness or sinfulness or stupidity, when you find yourself there, the way in which the main question of whether or not you trust God is what do you do with the correction when it comes? Whether that discipline comes through the commandments of Scripture, conversations with others, or the consequences of all of those things falling on us, when those things hit you, what is your gut reaction in that moment? That determines whether or not you trust that God is a loving father who's on your side and working through and in the midst of your dumbness to get you back on the way to wisdom or whether or not you think that he's got it out for you. Those who trust God, as it says in verse 12, trust him as our loving father. We know that discipline, conversations, consequences, and the commandments of Scripture are never punitive for the sake of being punitive. They are always restorative. They are given and they happen for the sake of getting us back on track. And so when, when that correction comes, when the discipline comes, consequences, commandments, as we're reading them in Scripture, or as we're having a conversation with our discipleship group, or with our friends, or even our coworkers, as we don't grovel, we don't give up, 
we humbly receive the correction. We repent, we apologize, we make it right as much as we can, and we step back onto wisdom's way. You see, the alternative to this sort of trust is what it says there in verse, uh, um, where am I, in verse 11, uh, in ver- at the beginning of verse 11. The opposite of this kind of trust is despising the correction, of being weary, or the word is disgusted by it. When the correction comes, we defend ourselves. When someone challenges or tries to lovingly point out something, we blame shift, we excuse, we sweep under the rug, we straw man, go through all of the fallacies of the arguments of debates, and those are the ways that we do this. The way that you brought this sin to me was not the best way ever, and so somehow now I don't have to repent. I don't have to acknowledge my own failure about this because the way that you brought it to me was not necessarily perfect. All of these reveal that we are leaning on our own understanding. We're being wise in our own eyes. We trust ourselves and we don't trust God. We don't trust the community that he's placed us around. And so the invitation here is, is, do you want to trust God with all that you are, with all that you have to open all of your ways to this kind of good discipline that ensures that you follow through with a good life is to place yourself in regular relationship to his commandments and to his community and allowing, opening yourself to actually receiving correction. This is how you grow. Meanwhile, the audit and the inspection is to ask yourself, how do you respond to correction? When was the last time you admitted you were wrong to someone? How do I respond to correction? Or on the other side is, do I give myself to a life where I isolate myself so far from others that I never have to hear it. For those of you who've been reading through Proverbs every single day, you've read, one of the Proverbs says that whoever isolates themselves seeks their own desire. They break out against all judgment. There are for some of us, not that we're hard-headed against community speaking in and correcting us or from the word, we just don't even participate at a level where anybody knows us well enough to offer that. So the invitation is, do you trust, do you trust God with all that you have and all that you are The first two are, what is your relationship to his word and what is your relationship to to discipline, correction when it comes? The third example of how we can trust God with all that we are and with all of our ways is in verse nine. It says, we honor the Lord with our wealth. And we'll slow down here and, and, and piece this together. When it says honor the Lord, this is connected deeply immediately to the fact that we've been called to trust the Lord. The connection here is, You honor what you trust and you trust what you honor. That which you view as most important is the thing that you trust the most in your lives. You give yourself to it. And those things that have found that you've given your trust to, those are the things that you will value and fight for and give yourself to over and over again. Verse nine seems to be saying that our money slides effortlessly to the things that we trust and honor most. The great revealer of our trust and honor is not so much the words on our mouth, but our monthly statement and where our money goes. This call to honor the Lord, it says, with your wealth, or or a little more helpfully, the NASB translates not just with your wealth, but as from your wealth. The idea being that, that Honoring God comes as we give him a, a not just with my wealth that I'm paying my bills on time and I'm shopping ethical and fair trade. Like, yes, and awesome, <laughs> good. 
The idea of from your wealth is that God is not just being honored with the way that you're spending, but actually being something being taken away from your wealth, something being given over to him. It is that God gets a, a, a cut, that God gets a portion. And specifically, this honoring mention of his wealth here, this actually extends beyond just the care for the poor. Though Proverbs is going to speak to this over and over and again, what it's speaking about here is not so much you honoring God from your wealth by giving to the poor. That is a separate thing than this. This is talking uniquely of the work of, of fun, the, the people of God funding the, the priestly work. Sacrifice, worship, teaching, what you could call the, the local church. Although, again, for us as well, the local church, a, a part of what we are doing is funding and working with these partners in our neighborhoods to care for the poor. There's an honoring work that the community of the church, that we gather its leadership, that is committed to honoring God, that is built on the collective giving and generosity of those members of the community. Similarly, this honoring God, trusting him, is not just from our wealth, but it's from the first fruits of our wealth, the best and the first. Simply put, Generosity is meant to come first within our lives. It is not leftover. Practically, giving and us thinking through what does generosity look like for, for my household and for yours begins with it the first and the foremost it being the priority of generosity. We don't fit in everything and then we get to the end of the month and we go, okay, what do we have left over this month? We begin with a posture of what what do we feel like God's calling us to give? And I would argue, and actually practice this for myself, but this is neither here nor there, but you just take this one for free, is I would argue that this first roots, uh, practically what would this mean in our, in our day and age is that we would give proportionally off of our gross and not our net. But that one's for free. And then here it is, all your produce. All, all that we have that our giving of what we honor the Lord from is proportional to all that we have. In the Old Testament, the training wheels was 10%. This is what you've heard referred to as the tithe. Now, as you move into the New Testament, it doesn't seem that the tithe continues. It actually gets uh, leveled up where it moves to, in some cases, 50%, and even in one instance, 100%. So biblically, the framework of what is proportional giving is somewhere between 10% and 100%. So here's, I, this is the invitation that I'm just setting this before us today. I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you to put your money where your trust is, with what you honor. For those of you that are a part of Collective, does my money and where it's going correspond with where my proclaimed trust and my honor is? And specifically, it's to those of you that are part of Collective Church that I'm going to camp here for a second, because this is an, an area of needed focus before us. Um, especially um, after 2020, but this, this has extended even before it. Uh, because collective, we currently are in a, an unsustainable place with hard decisions potentially in our future about um, our ministry opportunities and how we're able to serve and, and be the community that we are. Um, and, and this is large in part because of, of, of giving within our community. And we're not, there's no advertisements in this. There's no book deals Lorenzo doesn't have like a cool, he's not a YouTube influencer, you know, unboxing thing. That might, that might be our secret cash stash, actually. The biblical framework from the Old Testament to the New is that each local congregation and community is funded by the collective members of that community. 
that we all together share in this work together. And, and here's the thing. We currently are not seeing that within our community. Now, there's good news and bad news on this front. Now, the good news is, and you may not believe it because of today, that this is not because our church is too small and our budget is too big. Collective Church, it has been fascinating to watch how God is growing our community on the other side of 2020 when so many churches are still closing, that we have so many that are joining and getting, not just joining in a Sunday service, but actually getting connected. Some of that, that's you. And we are so excited that you are here. The size of our church is not the problem. And the, the budget, our minute, what we're, how, you know, our, our ministry goals and spending is, is not the problem. As our uh, internal financial board um, said it at their last board meeting, we don't have any fat to trim in this thing. I've got no cool sneakers here, right? The, the reality is, is, is we have what we need within our community, within the median income of the West Side and the greater Los Angeles area when we work those numbers, that, that if our people started jumping into proportional giving, we would be well, well within, our, our, within the block, within our current ministry goals. Not to say the future, but we'll grow, we'll continue moving. The problem is that right now we're not even, we're not even hitting that. And so here's, this is the, where the bad news comes in. So the good news is we have it before us. We have it within this community, within us. The bad news is, is that collective in the past and presently has been largely carried by the above and beyond giving of a minority rather than the faithful proportional giving of the majority. So the majority of our giving year to date of the majority of what's been funding this operation here, this local church gathering has come from 18 households. Household being a married or single kind of giving group. 18 households have, have largely kept this thing going over the past year. And um, 12% of that majority came from just two households. And 10% of that, that majority was uh, the collected offerings of our staff and pastors, all of whom give uh, at least 10% back to the church. So I want you to hear this. 22%, almost a quarter of, of what has been funding our church has come from for six households. To, to put it bluntly, if you are a part of Collective, I would ask you to audit your trust. What do you honor by looking at your giving and reconsider what that looks like? You honor with your wealth what you trust. And so here's the thing. If you don't trust us as your pastors, that we're being financially wise, let's have that conversation. We will open up all of the books for you. If you don't believe that we're being generous, I will gladly have a conversation with you about how my family gives. If you don't think that, whatever it is. But I don't think the problem is that you don't trust the elders of the church or that you don't trust that we're being, or you don't. The problem is, I, I think most often, because this is the, when it was the case for me when it finally, when I wasn't giving, was I didn't trust God. That I had all of my little good in life, my little baubles and distractions, that, you know, you've got this subscription and this thing and that thing and coffee, and this goes here and that goes here and this cool little thing over here. And like, and, and well, if I'm going to be generous and prioritize that, that means I'm going to have to say no to some of these, at the end of the day, silly and stupid things. And I'm going to have to take on a life and a posture of generosity and simplicity and contentment. And that's icky in Los Angeles. We want to be a counterculture, and I think generosity is one of the primary ways that we can do just that. Because here's the thing, at the end of the day, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, 
what's compelling me in this is that it's the issue of your honor and trust that motivates me in this. You see, if we had a smaller church or the median income or our budget was at a place that it didn't line up with those things, I would happily kill off any ministry thing and take pay cuts for myself. I would do anything that we would need to be to be within the reality of what was feasible for our community. I would happily do that. I'm not motivated. What I am saying is by the size of our church with the median income of our church and the amount of you people that are saying I'm committed and I'm here and then when we look at what the giving is and the fact that our ministry and our work in this community is so handicapped because of the lack of it requires us to ask what am I honoring? Where's my trust? And so to those of you that are trusting and honoring God with your wealth in this way, I, I am... You will not hear this <laughs> enough times. I'm incredibly grateful for your faithfulness to our church. I'm incredibly faithful to you. Faithful, grateful. That this is, this is, and this is why I'm so grateful for it. Not because of the fact that you're putting food on my table and you're feeding my kids. But because of the fact that what I see within you is someone who's genuinely giving their life into a way of generosity and trust. And here's the thing. The people that are actually giving at a proportional level, I would more than bet the house on the fact that that is overflowing into a hundred other areas of generosity. To those of you that are a part of Collective, you say, this is my church family. This is my home. This is where I'm being faithfully fed and served. And I, these are my pastors. These are my people, my community. I would ask, like, can you put, I would ask you to consider, put your money where your mouth is. Put your trust and your honor within the community that you so apparently love to honor. And so the fun part is also for those of you that don't identify as a Christian or you're visiting this morning, Welcome. <laughs> Here's the thing, part of the reason why we call this out of the people who are part of Collective is because we want to provide you with the space where you can come to a gathering that's not like in my living room, but I'd totally do that if need be, that you can, wor that you can worship, you can investigate, you can bring your skeptic self, and we will love and invite you, and you can check things out, and it won't cost you a penny. Every other Instagram person out, you know, it's like, you know, come on in. I've got all the secrets to life and, you know, sign up for my class on this stuff. Is that we want to have this for free for you. But it requires those of us who are part of it to be contributing members to that work. And so I, I think that's enough on that. And here's my thing. Once again, this is not meant to be heard as a word of condemnation. But going back to verse 11 is correction. And so the question is, what, what do we do with that? And so there you are, these three ways, these three examples of how we trust God with all of our heart and all of our ways. In verse 1, we keep his commandments. In verse 11, we receive his correction. In verse 9, we honor his wealth. Now, why we trust? Because this is the big one, right? Yeah, okay, give money, obey the Bible, receive correction. But why, why would I give myself to that at all? We haven't touched four verses here that I'm like, that I'm sure you caught as we read through which describe that if we trust God, things are seemingly gonna go great for us. Verse two says, if we don't forget his teaching, length of days and years of life, long life and peace. In verse four, it says, we'll find favor and good success with God and man. In verse eight, it says, there'll be healing to our flesh. Verse nine says that if we are generous, verse 10 then says, then you will have actually more, not less at the end of your giving. Now, as we read all of that, Maybe some of you begin to question, is Joel Osteen right? Are those preachers and sneakers onto something? Is that prosperity gospel legitimate? No. 
No. You see, the problem with the prosperity gospel, there's so many, the one that we'll do right here from Proverbs 3, is that they are reading Proverbs 3 backwards. They turn the potential benefits of wisdom and of trusting God into the very purpose of their trust. They use God for what they can get out of him. But all throughout this, those are simply little consequences that are given as reminders that you're not doing this inherently for nothing. But the deeper question that comes in the midst of all of these great things is not so much about Joel Osteen, but those deeper, more existential questions. That there are plenty of people who have embodied Proverbs 3, and they have lacked all of those things. There are people who have kept God's commandments, and they, they got cancer at 20. There are people who have not found favor and good success, but as a result of their faithfulness and trust in God, it got them killed. There have been people that in their generosity, actually, they actually ended up with nothing. There's a deeper question here about why we trust. Is, is Proverbs writing a check it can't cash? There's a deeper question here that first begins with us doing a little bit of work on exactly what we're reading when we read the book of Proverbs. See, the genre or the the style of Proverbs is is we need to remember that it's dealing in predictability, not in promises. Hear hear me in reading Proverbs. This is crucial. It is dealing in the predictability, predictable outcomes, but not promises. Another great example of this is in Proverbs uh, chapter 22, verse 6. It says, uh, to train a child up in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. I have many friends who I watch their parents, and I know that they train them up in a wise, stable, healthy home. And you know what? It, it didn't result in them going the way that they should go. There's, there's, there's regularly, there's, there's exceptions to what Proverbs seems to call the rule. So Proverbs is dealing with predictability and not promises. The, the great metaphor, I forget where I got this, but this incredible metaphor to think through the world that, that wisdom and Proverbs is painting is that the world is like a plank of wood that has a good grain to it. And when we live with that grain, when we live with wisdom, it, there, there's smooth sailing, there are benefits to it. But if we go against the grain, we get splinters. Proverbs seems to say there's wisdom and there's foolishness. And it makes a very simple, this, it sets up the rule. This is the rule of a moral universe that God has made that, that is good. But the story of the scriptures as it develops, we find that though the world has this good grain, there is this little sticky issue called the problem of evil. That there are knots in the plank. And even those who take their hands with the grain of wisdom still get splinters. And the biblical authors are not ignorant to this problem. Proverbs is meant to be read as a part with these two other wisdoms books, the book of Job and Ecclesiastes. These two books, which are all about the fact that you have people that live their lives all the time with the grain and it goes wrong for them. Job's whole life, the righteous, wise man who trusts and fears the Lord and he lives with it and what it leads to him getting sick and him losing everything. Ecclesiastes seems to look at it from the other way and go, you know what? The people that live right, like Job, everything regularly goes wrong for them. And the people who live wrong and unjustly and foolishly, everything goes great. See, 
I remember David Hubbard put it this way. The book of Proverbs comes to say, these are the rules for life. Try them and you'll find that they work. Job and Ecclesiastes say, we did and they don't. So, so what are we meant to do with these three books and such this complex view of how the world works? Here, here's, I think, the best way to understand this. Proverbs seems to give us the rule that there's a world created in which we live with trusting God, living with wisdom and obedience, that, that things most often work out for those people that live that way. And those who live against it will get splinters. And as Job and Ecclesiastes introduce us to, there are exceptions to this rule that are very real and very hard because righteous people suffer and fools get off free. But Proverbs would still seem to tell us that doesn't entirely disprove the rule. There is still wisdom in wisdom, even amid the knots. And so this is actually, on a, on a philosophical level, this is a far more nuanced view of the problem of evil within our world than simply everything's total chaos and simple cause and effect. The one of two ways that most of us are, tend to lean. The biblical worldview portrays this one that's a little more complex than that. There is a cause and effect pattern within our world, and yet it's off slant. It's, it's, there's a glitch in the system. Now that's helpful for reading Proverbs, but that doesn't really answer that initial question we had, does it? Why trust God if these things aren't readily accessible and seen within people who are walking by wisdom? Why trust God if Proverbs can only at best give us a prediction? Yeah? Why? Is that actually then the good life? Or, or even more than that, the deeper question, is God actually trustworthy? Why do we trust him? Verse 3 says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. When you look at these two words, uh, steadfast love, which is one word, and, and faithfulness in the Hebrew, when you look at them together, you find that they show up together 141 times throughout all of the Old Testament. And of these 141 times, all but one are used to identify the chief and primary defining characteristic of who God is and how he is. So verse three then, if this is the primary way of what we're supposed to read when we say steadfast love and faithfulness is that verse three is not just giving us another way of how we trust by being a steadfast, loving, and faithful person. No, that's, that's totally there. It's not just giving us another how we trust. Verse three is giving us the basis for why we trust. That we trust not for what we get out of the relationship, but for who he is. That we move in our posture of trust, of using him to abiding in him and with him. And, and this then also gives us the real basis for why we don't trust. Not fully. Why we play the game of dangling feet in the water. It's not so regularly, the reason why we don't trust God is not that we're worried he's not gonna give us what we want, but we don't trust him for who he is. We don't believe that God actually is steadfast and loving to us. We don't believe that he's faithful. Too often we conceive of God's love in the same thin, wavering, capricious love that we so often receive and give in our lives. 
the kind of love that so regularly has broken the trust that we have with others and broken the trust that others have with us. We believe that God more or less operates within the same basis of love. And so if God is actually as untrustworthy and wavering as everyone else, it makes sense that we lean on our own understanding and be wise in our own eyes. And so this is why before ever calling for us to trust God in verse 6 and verse 5, as important as those words are, some of the most important in the Bible, we need to come back and remember that verse 3 gives us the reason why. Why do we trust the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding? Verse 3, because he is the God who is steadfast in his love, that he is faithful to us. And so as we kind of wrap up and close here, the question is, okay, how... I want to trust. I want to live in that sort of way. I'm beginning to see that it seems like God is onto something when he portrays the good life as being in this way of wisdom is found in him. I want to do that. And yet, like you just said, Ryan, my, my trustometer is absolutely broken and I don't trust it anymore. I have betrayed. I have been hurt. I have had faithless and people all around me. And the fact that I would be called to give my trust to someone else, especially this God who I apparently do not see after the life that I lived, borders on delusion. I want to trust, but help my unbelief. What are the ways that we can deepen this? The Bible regularly invites us to look to deepen our trust in two ways, the experiential and the historical. The experiential being the the personal and communal moments in which we find that God has shown up and provided us with the very basis of what we have needed. And at times that may be some of the stuff in Proverbs 3 of healing and provision and yet also the deeper, more profound truth of forgiveness and restoration of inner peace and restor- like reconciliation within conflicts. When God shows up in that way, the experience of when everything seemed like it could not work out, God in his faithfulness and his love showed up. And this is why for some of you that that, that you've been a part, you've been following Jesus for a while, and you have a multitude of reasons to trust God. But the point is, is that you have been placed in this community because you have been placed around people who may not have those. And it is your story, our stories that we remind and give to one another that remind us of the faithfulness of God. But more than just being experiential, Because if you have experiential without historical, you're in danger of potentially being delusional. Historical is what grounds our experiences of God actually being grounded in something beyond just the fact that we're all having a really fun mass hallucination every Sunday. The historical basis of our trust is that we look back at the story of humanity and we find God's faithfulness to his people throughout history. There's some of you that are just low on trust right now, low on faith, and like the best thing for you to do would be to go read a biography from like some old faithful saint. But beyond historical, moving beyond just God's saints art history, we find the prime place of where we find the, the trustworthiness, the faithfulness, the steadfast love of God is most centrally found for us in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. If you're looking for trust, to be able to trust in the midst of all of the broken trust that you've had over your life. And how do I know that this God is actually genuinely trustworthy? We find in the cross and resurrection of Jesus the promised answer. We find the source of where we pull all of our trust from. 
Because what we find in the cross is like Ecclesiastes and Job, where the problem of evil is dealt with, not by giving us uh, an, simply just an answer to this that we can resolve and intellectually move on about our day. But like Ecclesiastes and Job, we find the righteous suffering. You see, the deeper answer to the problem of evil that we need is not an intellectual one, but an embodied one, so that we can trust someone. I don't know if this is making sense. I, I, in order to trust God most deeply and most fully, what you need is not a book, not a series of, 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 of talking points about how to resolve the issue of why do I still get splinters in this world and why doesn't wisdom always work out? What we don't need is, is that in trust. And how I know this is because I'm married. And there are so many times when my wife Erin is going through the most brutal of circumstances and I try to show up and I try to help in the form of, did you try this? Have you tried that? Well, actually, maybe from their perspective, when what my wife most deeply wants is someone to sit with her and say, me too. Someone to cry, someone to feel, and not just feel, to deeply empathetically feel. And the good news of what happens at the cross, in the midst of all of our feelings of we can't trust God, is that in the cross we have the answer of the God who did not stay at a distance and give you reasons why you can trust him, but he sat with us. He suffered with us and suffered for us. So any question about the trustworthiness of God gets pinned to the cross in the body of Jesus, of entirely being able to trust him, And no longer can we then question whether or not he's faithful, whether he's trustworthy. We're captivated by this. The the, the God that in Christ would belly flop himself onto all of our mess, the trust that to jump back on him is, is the only response. And even the good news of why we're gathered on a Sunday is that the, the cross wasn't the end of the story, that the resurrection of Jesus, which if true, promises the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. And the reality that regardless of whether or not we find the benefits of trusting God within this life, within this broken world, if all we have is splinters as we try to trust him and find the good life, then in fact that still is the good life. Because the good life is found not in what we get, but in who we know. And in knowing the resurrected Jesus We find him not just sitting with us in our suffering, but the promise of resurrection, the promise of new creation, the promise that in the age to come, our lives will truly be the fulfillment of all the benefits that can only be predicted here. A good life, a world without the knots. And so the invitation for all of us today is is wherever you may have been over the past week, as we all stand on the edge of the pool, in the midst of all of our doubt, all of our fears, all of our, our sin and our mess and our failures of what's been done to us and all of the things that make trust seem impossible, the invitation today is, is, is to belly flop, to give our whole selves to him. And so the only place left for us to go to do just that is to the table. Let's pray.